Hello and happy Wednesday. So glad you're here. This is Jill. Welcome. Welcome back to K9360. Um, how are we doing on this? Uh, goodness. Almost April. Kind of almost spring. My... Uh, phone weather app says 77 degrees tomorrow. We'll believe it when we see it, when we feel it. Maybe the flowers are up at your house. They are at my mother-in-law's little crocus doing their very best. And boy, are we ready. So thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for the messages I get uh, from folks telling me they're listening even from far away. So I'm grateful, truly grateful. I appreciate your interest and appreciate your uh, loyalty. And uh, we all do here at KZUM. And it's our community radio where our community conversations happen and dogs are part of that, right? So interesting development in a class I was teaching about two weeks ago where I was endeavoring to help a dog owner work her dog through a little bit of a challenge that he was facing in terms of where he should put his attention during training. And uh, when I took the leash to try to show her just a little bit of what I thought might work best for him, it put him a little bit over threshold and he jumped up on his hind legs and roared in my face and that was unsettling and unnerving to her but also a little disturbing to others in the class and uh, in the process of helping her manage her responses and helping the rest of the class manage and process their own perspectives on what transpired in that moment I was reminded of Ian Dunbar's discussion of thresholds and the threshold concepts with respect to how a dog will react uh, in certain situations or under pressure. And I first heard Dunbar talk about thresholds when I attended a seminar, goodness, that was probably back in 1988. And he was uh, out on the lecture circuit doing his best to share some pretty good information about aggression and how to think about and deal with an aggressive dog. And it was the first time I had heard him promote this notion of a threshold that that a dog could go over threshold. And uh, another funny thing I remember about that conference, it was at a hotel in St. Louis. And at the same time we were there for the dog behavior conference there was a star trek conference and those of us attending one conference would have to pass through the lobby and see the people attending the other conference and i think we both sets of attendees were giving the other set a kind of whale eye trying to imagine why someone would take an entire weekend to spend doing what they were doing or doing what we were doing as the case may be but it was kind of a funny moment subcultures clashing right okay so what does this mean this 
threshold concept. So Ian Dunbar is a veterinarian with a PhD. I think he's retired now, but for a long time, he was on the veterinary school faculty at the University of California in Berkeley. And he had some good ideas. He had some goofy ideas. He, uh, I think, maybe aspired at what time, at one time, to be more of a of a celebrity veterinarian, somebody more like Baxter Black or uh, Marty Becker. Um, but he kept one foot anchored in his academic position and connected to his mentor, Benjamin Hart, and uh, came up with some interesting explanatory patterns for helping us to make sense out of what we see with our dogs. And when he first presented the idea of the threshold concept, what he really had in mind were the, was the misunderstanding that so many people have when they say the dog bit for no reason out of the clear blue sky, which I will tell you more than once today is never, ever true unless the dog is having a medical episode uh maybe he's been hit by a car and he's in pain or shocky or the dog has uh is having seizures a seizing dog or a dog who's had medical trauma um will bite but they're not biting for no reason either okay so there's no such thing as a dog who bites for no reason out of the clear blue sky. And this is Dunbar's attempt to help us understand that. So he starts out by saying, again, when a dog bites, there's always this case history that the dog had been, quote, perfectly trustworthy for any number of years until suddenly, out of the clear blue sky, it attacked a child without warning and without provocation. At least that is the owner's version of what transpired. The dog will have a very different story. So Dunbar uh, wants us to consider that when applied to the analysis of behavior problems, falling back on the medical model prompts us to search for a single reason to explain a dog's action, sort of a direct cause and effect. But it's much more typical that there are many reasons for a dog to bite or there are many situations or specific stimuli which cause the dog to feel uneasy. So where it might be that none of these stimuli alone are adequate provocation for aggression, if the dog is simultaneously exposed to several of their triggers... That may cause the dog to bite, to go over threshold. And the concept that the dog is providing you with cues to the potential for a bite is a much more productive theoretical model, both for interpreting and resolving individual bite implements and for, and this is key, implementing a preventative intervention program. Because Dunbar would remind us that most owners are well aware of the situations the people, the actions, the places, the sights, the sounds, or the objects that make their dogs uneasy or unnerved. The sentences that they use to describe these situations start with the phrase, he doesn't like it when. 
if you hear or if you are an owner who says he doesn't like it when that's your first red flag. So for example, let's consider a typical dog has described by its owner. The owner will know have known for a long time that the dog doesn't like little kids. The dog takes a while to warm up to strangers. The dog is shy of being grasped or snatched at, so hand shy. And the dog is protective, guarding resources, objects such as food, a food bowl, a bone, or a toy. I'm going to quote Dunbar here, who says, Each euphemistic excuse is a master of understatement and self-deception. Let me say that again. This is Ian Dunbar. Each euphemistic excuse is a master of understatement and self-deception. Because here we have a dog that has not been given the foundations of its temperament or any kind of practical training. Yet the owner remains confident that all is fine and dandy. And on the surface, the dog may sound and seem comparative friendly, comparatively friendly. He only appears to be uneasy or apprehensive in some specific situation. He doesn't like it when. These are red flags. These are things to watch out for. These are things that need our attention as trainers. So you think you don't see it coming? Here is Dunbar's famous sort of case history scenario. Suppose your typical dog, we'll call him Rover, lives with a six-year-old boy named Johnny. Rover has never bitten Johnny, but on the other hand does not particularly like him either. The only time Rover ever growled was when Johnny, bless his little heart, prodded Rover's posterior with a pencil. But by mutual consent, they stay out of each other's way. Rover has never bitten a stranger. He has never even growled at a stranger. But he doesn't greet strangers either. Rather, he remains at a watchful distance and will only cautiously investigate after carefully observing an unfamiliar person for several minutes. Rover has never snapped or growled when handled, but he does imperceptibly duck his head and flinch whenever family members reach for his collar. Also, both his veterinarian and his groomer have mentioned that Rover has been quite a handful during routine examinations and that recently he was difficult to restrain. Rover has never snapped or growled to protect his food bowl, but he has never had the opportunity since everyone in the family has been instructed not to go near the dog when he's eating. But an observant owner might have noticed subtle posturing cues around the food bowl and passive protection with bones and toys. So the owner considers Rover just your normal faithful pooch because the owner is not aware of any signs of aggression. And then one day, it's the perfect storm. Johnny's best friend Jimmy comes over to play after school. Rover retires to the family room while the two children play with Jimmy's new toy, a remote-controlled plastic dinosaur that squirts sparks from its jaws. 
In the course of play, the little green monster bumped into Rover's aluminum food bowl. So, maybe it's dinner time and Rover's anticipation of food overcomes his antipathy toward the children in the kitchen and he trots towards his bowl, which he reached just as Jimmy reached to retrieve the toy, inadvertently brushing against the dog's collar in the process. Rover bites Jimmy and the bite breaks the skin. Think of it. With the stranger, a child, next to the food bowl, reaching for the dog's collar. One, ding, two, ding, three, ding, 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 ding. It proved too much for Rover. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Whereas no single stimulus was enough in itself, the compounded effects of a number of these stimuli exceeded the dog's bite inhibition threshold. It's like stacking things on top of each other. And whenever the desire to defend exceeds the level of bite inhibition acquired during development, the dog will bite. Certainly, and from his point of view, Rover had reasons to bite. In fact, he had several reasons. Because in reality, and ever since puppyhood, the dog had repeatedly warned the owners. Over and over, Rover had tried to convince his owners that he was uneasy and apprehensive around children. He felt on edge when strangers invaded his living space. He did not like people reaching for his head or neck or grabbing and jerking his collar. And he felt completely at odds when someone approached his food bowl because he had been accustomed to eating alone. Either the owners failed to notice these warnings or the warnings were similarly ignored, excused, or evaded. But Rover did warn the owners He had been warning them for years. The dog also warned Jimmy to back off immediately prior to the bite, and it's hardly the dog's fault that its quick and subtle warning went unnoticed and unheeded by a six-year-old child. Over thousands of years, the propensity for issuing warnings has been, in some cases, trained or ignored, uh, uh, bred out of dogs, um... Dunbar wants us to remember that in the early days of domestication, there was a number of strong selective pressures which influenced specific behaviors and temperamental qualities of domestic dogs. Um, Living in captivity, domestic dogs were selected for friendliness towards familiar people, but vocal aggressiveness towards strangers. Okay, keep that in mind, right? Um, And so we may have some consequence that's genetic the result of breeding but really what we have here is an owner problem okay hang with me so what's the solution training training is the solution because the example that I just gave you might be an oversimplification 
in reality for each individual dog. There are at least a dozen or so specific stimuli or situations that may give that dog the heebie-jeebies, right? The dog says, I don't know if I like this. We know the things that upset dogs. They are no great secret. So unless training begins early, dogs tend to become easy, uneasy when they're around valued possessions. They are uneasy or uncomfortable or unfamiliar with being handled by strangers, especially children or men or people acting peculiar, peculiarly. peculiarly. Okay, that's close enough. <laughs> um, during routine puppy classes, the owner should actively teach, train, and work the puppy through each potentially worrying stimulus in return. In my classes, we teach the dog specifically starting on the first night to tolerate handling. We teach the puppy specifically to uh, avoid or respect our space so that we're not competing with the dog over space. And we teach the dog that uh, command that allows us to gain control over or regain control over objects so that the dog understands that household items do not belong to him. Here's Dunbar's final paragraph, and I think it's a really good one. Owners must realize that a domestic dog is not domesticated until it has come through the end of the socialization period successfully, which is 12 to 14 weeks of age, and trained. Training is the answer, starting with puppy training classes, which allow the pup numerous rewarding and confidence-building interactions with their owners in the presence of these ordinary environmental distractions. Other people other objects, um, things that we know dogs won't always figure out on their own. Dunbar's last sentence is, we know the solution, so why don't we get on and solve the problem? Okay, that's Dunbar's threshold concept. And in our last few minutes together, I have to share something with you that came across my social media feed because it speaks directly to uh, what we were just talking about. It's using, for those of us of a certain age, you might remember the film Gremlins, and it's using a gremlin in place of a dog. Uh, see if you can, uh, see if the analogy strikes you as, as apt. It was uh, particularly funny to me. This is the Gremlin Adoption and Management Guidelines, and I would attribute it, except I don't know who wrote it. The film Gremlins was so realistic that I feel sure the scriptwriter was an animal shelter rescue manager. Take several pet owners and give them each a rescue gremlin, and make sure they understand to never give it water after midnight, or it will turn into a malevolent murderous monster. Make them watch an educational video and sign an agreement after their adoption counseling session. How many of them will truly believe you? How many think that you exaggerated just to get the message across? How many will be so seduced by the sweet baby fur baby pet that they cannot in their hearts believe your instructions? How many of them Googled 
gremlins and found a website claiming that a small ice cube would cause no harm or that the water restriction thing is a conspiracy to prevent us all from breeding gremlins so that the gremlin sellers can control the market. How many asked a dog trainer for adoption advice and were told that the board and train program fixes any gremlin behavior issues easily? How many will just plain forget about the rules because they woke up as humans normally do, sleepy and disoriented about the time? How many have family that believe all the explanations? Are the children capable of following the management program? Oh, did their grandfather have one that drank water every night and never changed? Or maybe that was a marmoset. Oh, anyway, same thing. Does their refrigerator have a lever to dispense ice and water? Will their faucets ever leak during the lifespan of a gremlin? How many think that all gremlin rescuers or breeders are nutty weirdos and don't know what they're talking about? Is it really possible to adopt out a gremlin and have the management instructions carried out for the gremlin's whole lifetime? Adopters. They can often follow management, but management is a big pain to follow religiously and religiously is the only way it works. When management goes well, most people decide that management is working and they gradually reduce the restrictions. After a certain amount of time with no incident passes, they persuade themselves that the problem is gone. They further reduce the management and disaster ensues. Right? You saw the movie. You know what happens. You know how it goes, right? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know why it's hard to follow instructions, but it is. All right, so let's go back. Again, you can find Ian Dunbar online if you're interested in any of this. Um, How to know when your dog is warning you and what would our takeaway be? That there is no such thing as a dog that bites for no reason out of the clear blue sky, okay? So if your dog is inclined to guard the end of the couch or get on the bed and refuse to get off, if your dog doesn't get out of your way or is consistently banging into you, expecting you to move out of their way, or if you are stepping around the dog or stepping over the dog in ways that... um, Acknowledge to the dog in his mind that the space belongs to him, that's a red flag. If your dog is guarding objects, food bowls, toys, bones, or you, that's a problem. That is not protection, it's possession. And if your dog thinks he owns you, your relationship is upside down, right? These are potential ways in which dogs show us that they're willing to bite to resolve conflict, right? When the outcome of a situation is in dispute, the dog will take upon himself to resolve it in ways that are satisfying to him unless he has been taught otherwise, right? We want dogs to be comfortable with normal handling, Uh, to be able to tolerate the veterinary exam um, or to simply get out of the way 
of the kids if things get crazy, right? To use space, not to guard it, but to uh, use it to keep conflict from becoming violent. How's that for a way of characterizing it, right? But if you have in mind a description of your dog, or if you have friends or family who use the phrase, he doesn't like it when, to talk about their dog's attitude, the dog's affect, or the dog's behavior, that gives you a clue or a cue about what it is in your dog's temperament or where the spaces are, the holes are in your dog's training that need to be addressed, not ignored or evaded, right? I think Dunbar's pretty clear. I'm going to read you that sentence one more time. Each euphemistic excuse is a master of understatement and self-deception. Okay. What I told my my obedience student in class the other night was that we had met or taken the dog over threshold and that as an owner, I want to know where my dog's threshold is. So when I'm training and working with the dog, I may bring a little bit of pressure or put the dog in situations where they will show me this is where I'm over threshold. I do not want the, a stranger to, to learn that. I do not want a child to be the one whose behavior pushes the dog over threshold. And that's where it becomes visible to me. Okay. All right. I guess we're just about out of time. Ian Dunbar, how to tell when your dog is warning you. And his threshold concept for, for dog bites, very, very, very useful to us. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for being here. Thanks for another few minutes spent with us at KZUM. But it's not just a few minutes. Hang around. The celebration is coming up. Lots more for you on this Wednesday evening here at KZUM and KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. See you here next week. Thanks. Thanks.